Philippians, I'm sure you are all aware, is a wonderful book of the Bible, one that we have spent a lot of time in here recently, simply because before we were walking through the Gospel of John, we spent oh, almost a year walking through Philippians. Uh, Philippians is one of, those, uh, one of those books that I personally uh, love, and I, I think it, it sets so kind of near to my heart. Um, whenever I am sitting with somebody that is about to die, I actually read the book of Philippians to them. That's been a habit of mine for many years um, because it speaks to us of the central hope of the Christian life, of what, what we depend on, what we look forward to, um, the attitude that we have in the middle of fellowship, and so many things. Um, and so, so when we come to the book of Philippians, not only did we walk through it as a church, but it is, it is one of those that uh, should really sit high in the uh, mind of a Christian to return to often. The four chapters of Philippians are uh, challenging in so many ways uh, as to our, our basic understanding of the world um, and also of the gospel. Um, when, we, when we come to Philippians chapter 2, obviously we are here because this is a class on the Holy Spirit, and so well, there's only two main references to the Holy Spirit in the book of Philippians, but they are so important and they sit right at the crux of the whole argument and quite important. So I want you to see them. It is Philippians chapter two, verse one and Philippians chapter three, verse three. Um, and so we're going to see the connection between these and the role that they play in the whole book. Um, I hope you can appreciate it. When we, uh, when we come to Philippians, one thing that should come to your mind is the humility that it is to live inside the gospel and the joy that that brings. The uh, subtitle of my sermon series through the book of Philippians was Living Inside the Joy of the Gospel, because that's really what Philippians is all about. Uh, one of the great joyful things we have as Christians is that we get to live that life humbly with one another. Have you, you, you've recognized that Christians are all quite different from one another, right? In order for them to be unified, in order for them to enjoy the gospel, they must actually be humbly walking next to one another. There is not the insertion that uh, on debatable matters you have to be like me or I have to be like you. There's all manner of ways that Christians live in this world, yet there should be unity in the midst of that and it requires humility. Uh, this does not mean that when somebody has sin taking over their life, we just tolerate that. No, no, no. We are to challenge one another when it comes to such things. But when it comes to matters of opinion and differences and so forth, it takes a great deal of humility and to not assert one's selfishness over another. And so I want you to see that central to that is the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Let's see it. Chapter 2, verse 1. The apostle writes, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, if any of this exists, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then we have this marvelous, earliest hymn of the church. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That entire section is predicated on the presence of the Spirit of God in the midst of the assembly of Christians. The encouragement comes from Christ and being in him. The love that Christians have for one another brings a comfort to our lives, and the participation of the Spirit brings along a sympathy and an affection for one another that is absolutely necessary in order to walk humbly side by side. It means the role of the Spirit of God is not just about you fixing your life and you being sanctified. It's about your role in other Christians' lives too. That the Spirit of God has in his mind to encourage fellowship so that you and other Christians both enjoy the gospel of Christ. Have you ever known Christians that make the Christian life seem like nothing but drudgery? I have. I've known lots that try to Imagine that their role is to, to be the fruit inspector in other people's lives, to, to analyze how your life is different than mine, and therefore I try to make it so that I can intimidate you to a certain extent to make you more like me. Um, that, kind of, that kind of stuff interrupts fellowship on a real deep level because we, we actually miss out on the great parts of fellowship because we and others tend towards this pride. And so what Paul is saying is, this, this doesn't come from the Spirit of God. This does not actually come from our sanctification to assert ourselves and our, uh, just our base concepts of life over and against one another. Uh, basically, we, know how, we should know how to draw our boundaries well. Yes, sir. Trying to convince somebody mm-hmm. right, that they should walk humbly to God, okay, and they say they're, um, oh, I'm a Christian, okay, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that they're missing a lot of steps, okay, like going to church and and right. uh, you know fellowship with other Christians and stuff like that. Correct. Look, and so when you try and talk to them and you say I do these things, aren't you at that point? Saying you're above them? No. I mean, I understand. So, I'm trying to convince. I, I don't want to say I'm better than you. No. I'm so the. I think you ought to do this, which is what I'm doing. This is why we stick with Scripture. Because Scripture will be the one that comes and says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, right? It's not coming on your experience. These are not disputable matters. Uh, when it comes to the attendance of the fellowship of other Christians, If someone says, I am a Christian and refuses to go to church, that person is separating themselves from the body of Christ. It's a very dangerous, very dangerous place. Yeah, well, I mean... You try to open up the Bible to, I mean, that way I look at trying to open up the Bible to them. If they don't want to take it, you just forget it. So... Yeah, so in this point, um, to somebody who does not respect either the scriptures, the correction of another Christian, and doesn't want to actually fellowship with other Christians, there is absolutely no reason to consider this person a Christian. Zero. 
Um, I know, and they need the gospel. They don't. They don't just need correction in one area of their life. They actually need the gospel because somewhere along the line, they've received a message about the gospel that says all you have to do is give a nod to Jesus and everything's fine. No, that's not how this works. Uh, it. It. This is. This is a full-on. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and join the death march. This is not a, oh, I, I know I'm a Christian because I remember this instance somewhere in the past. Uh, no, that's not how the scriptures ever speak of salvation. Those whom God saves, he sanctifies. And what they're expressing is a life of no sanctification whatsoever. They don't need other Christians. They don't need to attend the assembly of saints. They don't need other people, and they don't even need the scriptures to come in and correct them. That is somebody that's not being sanctified. By very definition, that's somebody that is not saved. So, um, when Paul is writing here, he is writing to, when we come together as Christians, how do we get along? This isn't about how evangelism is carried out. Evangelism is a whole nother ball of wax. Um, and there is, there is humility involved with that, but the humility goes so far as to say, this is what God has said. This is not my message of salvation. This is not my religion. This is, this is what God has said to us and, and why I will quote scripture. I will give them what God has said. I will give them the word of God. Same responsibility I have as a pastor. I'm not going to stand up front and tell you guys how to live. I'm going to give you what scripture says. And when it says how to live, best believe I'll be telling you that. Um, but I'm not going to be up there saying, you know, here's the color car you should be driving. Here's the, this. No, no, no. There needs to be a humility to say, I don't want you to be like me. I want you to be like Christ. And, and that's really what he's addressing here. He says we, we have our own interests, but we actually need to be caring about the interests of other Christians, right? Uh, and he even says this in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Instead, he actually expresses this exact mind that he is encouraging among Christians is what belongs to them because it belonged in Christ. And he is their head. And so the word picture is quite awesome because he's saying, you who are part of the body of Christ, you will have the same mind of Christ. Why? Because you're his body. And from what comes the rulership? But it comes from the head. The body doesn't tell the head what to do. This is what some of our very confused friends uh, get wrong when they try to instruct the spirit or instruct Christ who he is to heal. Uh, that's not how all the body works. If my hand tells my head what to do, I'm going to tell my hand to take a break. Uh, that, that's not how this works. The head is in charge of the body. Uh, and, and when it comes to this, because Christ had this mind of humility in himself, he who had no requirements of humility on him whatsoever because he had no sin whatsoever, did not come and just lord it over everybody around him. His humility was directed towards the obedience that he had towards the Father even to the point of death. You say, well, what am I suffering? Uh, I don't deserve this or I don't deserve that. We deserve far worse than anything we've suffered. And God in his grace has not allowed that to go on. God in his grace has actually saved us in the midst of our own sins and, and saved us from them. And so this, this kind of attitude of this is all predicated on the necessity of having the Spirit of God. Someone who says to me, I have the Spirit of God, but then doesn't want to be around other Christians. I don't believe them. They say, well, no, other Christians, while they're, 
you know, uh, they're, they're uh, I don't know, they're, they're stupid or they have this or they're so legalistic or anything. Say, Christians have their faults, absolutely. But there is nowhere in scripture where we could possibly argue that a Christian will look at other Christians and go, I don't want to be around them. In fact, 1 John makes it very clear, if you do not love those whom the Lord loves, the love of God is not in you. I mean, by very definition. Uh, if, if God saw fit to save them, uh, then we should want to be in fellowship with them. And, and that, that, is, that is kind of one of those things that we need to be reminded of. It requires a great deal of humility. Uh, unfortunately, in our culture, we can choose who to align ourselves with because of denominations. And so we don't have to face this very often. We can just find a church that's surrounded by people that remind us of us. And it feels really comfortable. Uh, and so then we have the attitude, we are the church and all the other churches are bad and we don't want to fellowship with them. And that attitude of, of pride goes to the church level very often in our culture. Um, and then we call that humility. That's not humility. That's just, that's just joint pride. Uh, and so it, it, this, this should go and extend out to all Christians that truly trust in Christ alone for their salvation we will seek to fellowship with them no matter, right? And yeah, that's going to require a great deal of humility. But most immediately, it is, it is to the gathered assembly as we come together, how is it that we are to do this? this? This is all predicated on the necessity of the Spirit of God guiding us to do this. This is His work. I want you to see how it plays out as far as for the salvation of His people are concerned. Look to chapter 3. Some of his uh, final exhortations come in seeing the gospel in all of its glory and clearly so. Look at chapter 3, verse, well, let's start in verse 1. You right there, girl? Oh, yeah, well, that's fun. All right. Chapter 3, we'll start in verse 1. It says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. In other words, I'm going to remind you of something you already know. But I'm very, very glad Paul wrote this. This is my favorite passage about the gospel and all the scriptures. It says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Basically, look out for all of those who are going to try salvation any which way they possibly can. It says, verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, 
that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Awesome passage. But again, all of this goes back to the identity of a Christian. And this is what we express on this. Who are real Christians? Well, he describes them in verse 3. They worship by the Spirit of God, and they glory in Christ Jesus, and they put no confidence in their own abilities. When we look at our lives and we see sin in our lives, and we try to fix it on our own, that is putting confidence in the flesh. You're not going to be able to do that. The Spirit of God is the one who does these things. The worship of the, of the Christian life extends to all areas of the Christian life, not just singing, which is unfortunately what our culture has told us. Worship extends to obedience, it extends to quietness, it extends to singing, it extends to reading and submitting to the Word of God. Worship is all-inclusive. This is what Jesus was talking to the uh, woman at the well in John chapter 4 about. Those who worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And that is capital S. This is not something that we have the ability to rise up to. This is something that the Spirit of God works in us. And the more and more we realize that the Spirit of God is doing these things, the more we will glory in Christ Jesus and the less confidence we will ever place in ourselves. And he expresses these things to show us the reality that the entire gospel the entire life of the Christian is predicated on the reality that the Spirit of God is doing something in us that we couldn't do. You couldn't save yourself, neither could I. We can't grow ourselves into Christ at all. Our flesh, our natural abilities, do not have the ability to present ourselves faultless before the throne of grace. Those are things that belong to the Spirit of God and Christ Jesus himself. Paul even uses his own pedigree to show them how little confidence anyone can put in the flesh. He says, look, I, I have, if, if there ever was somebody who could be perfected by the flesh, Paul says, I, I have it in spades. He says, I, it, it, that's what he says in verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more reason. And yet he counts all things. He lists off this huge list. I am... You know, I am of the, uh, 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 I'm circumcised on the eighth day, people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, I was, as to the law of Pharisees, zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness and under the law, blameless. Nobody could hold anything against me at all. Whatever gain I had, he says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I would rather have him than anything I've ever done or in all the things I've ever done why? He says, I in fact count all the gain I had as loss. Indeed, he says, verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, everything that I have ever done, all the accomplishments that I have ever done. Israel, Benjamin, circumcision, everything is counted as loss. Why? Because there's a surpassing worth in knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says at the end of verse 8, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as garbage. Refuse. In order that I may gain Christ. Verse 9. I am to be found in Christ. I don't want a righteousness of my own 
I do not have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I have a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. It is a righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith. In other words, devoting ourselves to Christ and belonging to him, that is the focus of the Christian. It is not on fixing all the things in our life. The Spirit of God does this. Christ himself does this. Those whom he saves, he certainly sanctifies and works on. There are, there are sins in my life when I was 25. I had no idea of their existence. None. There are sins in my life today I don't even know that I commit. Do I really think I'm the answer to fix all my problems? No. I, I might be able to fix this problem here and that problem there, but I, I'm looking at this knob and that knob, and I can't even see an entire factory filled with knobs and switches that I don't even know exist. The Spirit of God searches the hearts of man. He knows exactly how to sanctify us. And he certainly will do so. This is the promise that is given to Christians as they pursue Christ that the Spirit of God continually works on them. The Spirit of God, unfortunately in our day, due to the, uh, the poor side of the influences from both charismatic and Pentecostal movements, has been reduced to the idea that he is just an energy force that we can toss around and is here for our good, um, uh, our good intention. As if I can make the Spirit of God show up and give me spiritual gifts whenever I want, or I can slay you in the Spirit, or I can, uh, I can do such things. That is not how the Spirit of God is ever spoken of in Scripture. The Spirit moves where he will. You can't control the Spirit of God anymore than you can control the wind outside. Any of you ever tried to do that? Yeah, good luck. Doesn't work. It finds its way around. Same with the Spirit of God. He finds his way around. There is nothing that you can do to make him do certain things in certain ways. Our responsibility is to follow Christ, to keep our eyes on him, and to walk humbly with one another. Uh, Movies sometimes set our perceptions about things, you know, like yep. when uh, somebody's dying and the minister's there or a chaplain's there or something, you know, just say that you want the Lord and that's going to, you know, that's going to get you into heaven. Yeah. It, 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 that's really not, if his heart turned immediately, I understand right. God can do anything, okay? Right. But it's, uh, <clears throat> if you haven't tried to live, you haven't really believed it all your life. I mean, I understand that uh, it doesn't matter whether it's your eighth day or 28th day or whatever it is. It's all right in God's sight. Right. Because it's almost instantaneous. Right. But the idea that I just have to be a Christian just before I die, that's really faulty. Well, yeah, especially if you're planning on that. I would say if somebody is planning on that to just take out that insurance policy right before they die, uh, that in and of itself shows that you have no concern whatsoever about what real salvation is. You only want its benefits without its responsibilities. And that's, that's not how mature people think. Mature people look at the world, the good side of maturity, not the bad side of maturity. The good side of maturity, people look at the world and say, not I'm going to uh, look at it for only what it can give me. You know, I, I just want the privileges but none of the responsibilities. That's what children think like. You know, I, I want the candy, uh, I want to not go to school, I don't want to clean my room. 
this is the reason why I have parents, right? You know, and the same thing for the Spirit of God. We, you, we do not look at the Christian life. We don't even look at salvation to just say, this is what I want out of it. I want safety. I want security. I want money. I want health. Uh, all this kind of stuff. But then we don't want to actually walk with Christ when he says, pick up your cross. It might cost you everything. And unfortunately, it informs the way we even evangelize. We go, oh, you know, do you feel like you have a purposeless life? Or are you unhappy? Do you want to try Jesus out for a few weeks? You know, it's like a money-back guarantee. I mean, that, this is not how evangelism is to be taken care of. Evangelism is to be said, there is a day on which God has set the world in which he will judge the world by righteousness, and he's given assurance of that by raising Christ from the dead. Repent and believe in the gospel. Why should you die? Right? That, that is evangelism. And, 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 and when you follow Christ, you will have a desire to be alongside other Christians and all of the frustration that that brings, right? Other Christians have been the source of a great deal of struggle and frustration for me over the years. You will still find me in church every Sunday because I know that the alternative is death outside the church. This is where there is safety because there are other Christians who will push me onto Christ and that is the only place I want to go. It is the only place where I'm going to go. Not because I think it will present me faultless. No, Christ will do that. And not because God just tells us to do that, but because we have the opportunity to do that. We have, we have the privilege of joining with one another and, and being spurned on to love and good works. That is a tremendous gift to the church. And so when I hear Christians go, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't have to go to church. I don't even understand the language you're speaking. Like, I know there are times, I tried that for like six weeks, and it nearly killed me. I hated it, and I loved it in my sinful side of things, but there was part of me that was just screaming for life again. And, and it, is, it is something that is so hard for me to even conceptualize this idea of, I'm much more comfortable not being with Christians. I don't understand that. I, I don't understand that biblically. I don't understand that even from my own experience. If you're more comfortable with unbelievers than you are with Christians, that's a real problem. Massive problem. Yes, Christians are morons, by and large. I mean, we're told that straight up in 1 Corinthians 1. He's like, yeah, all of us. He says, look around. God is not choosing the best and the brightest from the world. He says it. Not many wise, not many, you know, um, not many very highly accomplished. No, God is choosing the foolish of the world to shame the wise. And when people look at the church and they go like, well, I only want to be where the smartest people are. I only want to be where the most accomplished people, the most wealthy people are. That is not a biblical or Christian attitude towards the church at all. I want to be where those who just encourage my sin or don't challenge me. That is not a Christian attitude of the world or of life. When we walk humbly with one another, when we worship by the Spirit of God, as Philippians is expressing to, to us about this, this will lead us to opening ourselves up to the correction that the Spirit of God has in our lives. Unless you really think that you've accomplished everything in the Christian life. If we think we've arrived and we've gotten the Christian life figured out, then great. Don't attend church. There's no reason for you to be there. You can go on and be self-deceived. All right, we have time for 1 Timothy because it's a short passage, but I want you to see the introduction to 1 Timothy first, so let's, let's do that Paul's quick. Paul's first letter to Timothy. 
paul spent many years traveling about and starting new churches and he developed a large team of co-workers in this mission timothy was one of these paul was once in the city of lystra and he met timothy's faithful mother and grandmother and he was impressed by timothy's passion and devotion to jesus and so paul mentored him for many years and eventually started sending him on missions to different churches and so when Paul got word about a group of leaders who infiltrated the influential church in Ephesus, they were spreading incorrect views about Jesus and what it means to follow him, he sent Timothy to confront these leaders and restore order to this church. So after Timothy arrived there, Paul sent this letter to follow up and instruct him on how to fulfill this mission. The letter has a really cool design. There's an opening and closing commission to Timothy to go confront these leaders and their bad theology. And then these surround two large central sections that are full of really practical instructions about the problems that Timothy faced in the Ephesian church. And then finally, all of these sections are linked together or concluded by a series of three poems that each exalt the risen Jesus as the king of the world. Let's dive in and you'll see how it works. Paul opens by recalling how he sent Timothy to Ephesus to confront these leaders who were spreading their strange teaching. And he describes how these guys are obsessed with speculating about the Torah, specifically the early stories and genealogies in the book of Genesis. And as we'll see, they had developed all kinds of weird teachings about food and marriage and sex that weren't consistent with the teachings of Jesus or the apostles. He even named some of these people, Alexander and Hymenaeus, and he names, described names. how their teaching has divided the church, it's generated controversy. And Paul says this is actually the first clear sign that their teaching is distorted. When genuine Christian teaching is done, it's faithful to the way of Jesus and it results in love and genuine faith. And he says the purpose of the Torah anyway isn't to fuel speculation. Rather, its purpose is to expose the truth about the human condition, as it did for Paul. Whoa, Correct teaching about the Torah will lead people to see the grace of God revealed in the Messiah who came to save sinful, broken people. And so Paul closes here with a poem that honors King Jesus over all, and he calls Timothy to shut these men and their false teaching down. He then addresses very specific problems in this church caused by the false teachers. First of all, he calls Timothy to hold regular church prayer gatherings, to pray for the governing leaders of Rome and for peace, because peace in the land, it creates an ideal setting for Jesus' followers to keep spreading their message about the God of peace, who wants all people to be saved, the God who sent Jesus as the only mediator to give his life as a ransom for all. In contrast to the false teachers, Paul reminds Timothy that God wants to rescue the whole world, and prayer is going to keep this at the forefront of their minds. Paul then addresses problems related to men and women who are being influenced by these corrupt leaders in Ephesus. So he first shuts down a group of men who were getting drawn into angry theological disputes started by the teachers. He says these guys should learn how to pray. Then he confronts a group of wealthy women in the church who were treating the Sunday gathering like a fashion show. They were dressing so upscale that they would shame most of the other people who couldn't afford such a wardrobe. And not only that, but some of these women were also usurping leadership positions in the church and they were teaching others the bad theology of the corrupt teachers. And so Paul shuts these women down. He says they should not teach or lead in the church. And then he goes on to explore the story of Adam and Eve and the serpent from Genesis chapter 3. Now, this is one of those sections in Paul's letters where, like Peter said, he's kind of hard to understand. There are many different views about what Paul meant here. 
Some think that Paul is prohibiting women from ever teaching or leading men in any church, and that his comments about Adam and Eve are about how God has ordered that only men should be leaders in the church. There are others who think that Paul is prohibiting women from having leadership authority over men in a church, but that once educated women should and can teach as leaders in a church under male leadership. And there are still others who think that Paul is only prohibiting these women in Ephesus, and that his comments about Adam and Eve are a comparison of how these women have been deceived by the false teachers. Whichever view you take, Paul is clear that these Ephesian women need to come under Timothy's leadership and get a proper theological education. And the goal is to help them grow so that they could one day become like the outstanding female ministers that Paul mentions in his other letters, like Phoebe or Junia or Priscilla. Paul continues to address this leadership crisis, and he calls Timothy to appoint a small, healthy team of husbands and fathers who will act like elders or overseers for the church. These should be men of outstanding character and integrity, and they will work alongside a team of deacons. It's a Greek word that means servant. And these are men and women who actually lead and do the ministries of the church, and they are to have the same kind of character as the elders. And all together, these people should be known for healthy relationships in their families, because that will demonstrate their ability to lead in the church, which is God's family. And the way of life that they live all together is consistent with the story about Jesus, which is explored in the closing poem, about his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation as king, and then the spread of his new family throughout the whole world. Paul's second body of instructions for Timothy are, again, very specific to the problems caused by these bad leaders. So he first corrects their bad theology. They've been telling people to stop eating certain kinds of foods, most likely meat, and to stop getting married, which Paul thinks is ridiculous. So he goes to Genesis 1, and he reminds Timothy that God's entire creation is very good, including food and marriage. It is all to be received with gratefulness by those who know and give thanks to the Creator. Paul then moves on to address problems about the church's care of widows. So this very important ministry was being taken advantage of by younger, wealthy widows, most likely the same troublemaking women from chapter 2. They would sign up for the church's support, but then spend their days sleeping around, spreading gossip, and damaging the church's reputation in the city. Paul is having none of it. He says that only older widows that have no other family support qualify, and for these, the church should show the love and generosity of Jesus. Paul then addresses problems among some older men in the church, and Timothy is to respect their age, but not their misbehavior, which seems to be alcohol-related. They're damaging the church's reputation in Ephesus. So Timothy is in love to confront them and have them step down if they're in leadership. And then Paul adds this interesting side note that this doesn't mean that Timothy himself should never drink. Given his stomach problems, he should probably have a glass of wine each night with dinner. Paul then addresses a problem among Christian slaves. Some of them were disrespecting their Christian masters. And so yes, the gospel creates equality among Jesus' followers. However, Paul thinks that equality needs to be implemented in a strategic way that doesn't compromise the mission and witness of the church. If Christians become associated with slave rebellions, they are compromised. The Christian transformation of the Roman household had to be implemented strategically so that their neighbors could be persuaded and not repulsed by this new vision of God's family. 
Finally, Paul closes the letter by calling Timothy again to confront the corrupt leaders. Paul here exposes their motives to make lots of money by accumulating followers and then charging them all high rates for their teaching. These teachers betray Jesus and his message of contentment and simple living. And so Paul instructs the wealthy Ephesian Christians to become rich in good works and generosity, to be people who submit all of their resources to King Jesus, and he's the one who inspires the final poem about how he is the true king above all other kings. First Timothy is a really important letter. It helps us gain a holistic vision of the nature and mission of the church. So what a Jesus community believes will directly shape how that community lives and behaves in its city. And so its theology, its beliefs have to be constantly critiqued and formed by the scriptures and the good news about Jesus. And how the church is perceived in public is also very important to Paul. Christians should be known as people who are full of integrity, known for good works, known for serving the poor and the most vulnerable, all out of devotion to the risen King Jesus. And that's what 1 Timothy is all about. So the, the concept of 1 Timothy really should, um, uh, would, should stand in our, our minds of we have... Uh, Timothy being encouraged in the midst of a great deal of things that he had to fix in the church in Ephesus. Um, but I want you to really pay attention to the references here. It's right at the center. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 4, verse... Oh, probably we'll work up to verse 5 here. Um, and these are the two references to the Spirit of God. And here he, Paul makes this connection between all these things going on as it is not you fighting alone for these things. The Spirit of God actually um, is involved on every level of this. Uh, so I want you to see this. Verse 14 in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is where we'll start. Paul says to Timothy, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. And if your Bible has these uh, next, this next verse set aside in like poetic form, that's on purpose. Um, he says in verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He, meaning Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. There the whole story of Christ and what he came here to do, and what God was doing through him, and how the Spirit of God um, gave justification for what he was doing, uh, is reflected in the responsibility that Timothy had in the church in Ephesus. Um, at, at times, Christ's ministry was unpopular, yes? At times, Jesus would actually preach things that specifically made 99% of people listening leave. That's hard to grasp. He never, ever, ever preached in a manner that every single person hearing believed on him, ever. In fact, he said, I specifically preach in parables so that the wrong people don't believe. Most people don't realize that Jesus said that expressly. He quotes Isaiah 6 when people ask him, why is it you always speak in parables? He says, specifically, so that those who I am saving hear and believe, and so that those who I am not, do not. 
Most people don't make their peace with that teaching that Jesus says explicitly, but that's kind of the whole point. God is here to save his people. He's not here to save every single person. If he is, he's failing enormously. You see that? And so what Jesus says is, every single person that the Father gives me, I will save. I will not lose a single one of them. That's John chapter 6. But here, what Paul is drawing out, he says, the ministry of Christ was not here to make nice with everybody. When Timothy came to Ephesus, all sorts of people had to leave. Why? You had all sorts of leadership problems that were breaking down everywhere. Elders that didn't know their responsibility. Older men in the church that didn't know their responsibility towards keeping their lives blameless. Uh, older women in the church and younger women in the church having issues of teaching and, uh, and showing off and all sorts of issues that came up. And so Paul addresses almost every single one of these and says, Timothy, you are not going to be popular, just so you know. You are, you are going into a situation where there is no way to make nice with everyone. And he reminds him of the ministry of Christ. Yes, sir. After. So 1 Timothy is written from prison in Rome. We're following this all chronologically. So this is right after the book of Philippians is written. Um, he'll write to Titus over in Crete, who is another guy founding the church there as well. Uh, and then he'll write to Timothy again in 2 Timothy and encourage him yet again because things still had to be dealt with. Um, but this one is much more of a go there and fix it type thing. Um, and so, yeah, this is chronologically, we're going through it all chronological. So um, this is right after Philippians and Ephesians are written. All of them are written from prison in Rome. It's, un it's interesting in that thing there when you came up with the elders of the church. Yep. There are no women shown there. Correct. So in those days, um, they would not hop. It, it says don't, you know, don't follow women. Right. So that creates a lot of people. Yeah, it does. Yeah, well, it, it creates problems because, you know, for, for a lot of people in the modern church, because there's a lot that, you know, look at that and go, well, you know. Paul's first letter to Tim. Jeez. That not only was Paul wrong, but so was the church for 1,800 years, and now we have it right. Women can totally be elders. Uh, no, uh, they can't. He, he says it explicitly. And when it, with regards to deacons, there is a, there is a case to be made that, that uh, there can be men and women deacons. There is absolutely a biblical case for that. Women elders, there is no case for it whatsoever, period. None. Zero. Uh, nor from history. And th this is something that I took up with several guys I go to seminary with. Um, and I don't think they'd ever even been asked the question. I said, okay, so, because they were trying to argue that this was normal, that, that women could be pastors. I said, show me one reference in the first 800 years of the church. Anywhere. And the answer was, uh, we don't, we don't, there isn't one. I said, you're not talking about normal practice. You're not even talking about exceptional practice. You're talking about no practice. It's not there. And you're going to have to deal with that. Now, the same goes with speaking in tongues in the way that the past 120 years People have believed that it's just this murmuring, muttering. This is completely absent from the church for 1,900 years. Why? If you claim that it's normative. And, well, they have to argue that it's part of a restoration of something. They, they can't say that this is consistent with church history. One of the reasons why I love church, studying church history, it kind of 
helps keep us grounded in expectation. Um, but yes, as far as Paul is concerned, as far as anywhere in Scripture is concerned, there is no female pastors. It doesn't work like that. Um, not because men are so much better. I always point this out. Uh, I really honestly think it's because when men fail, they tend to go down flaming and burning and their whole life explodes. When women go off um, the theological tracks, so to say, it's a lot easier to be less public about that. And so there's, there's reasons for that. There's uh, all this manifest. Regardless of such, Paul's very clear on it. Uh, and there's a wisdom there that we have to submit to. I will say, personally, I come from a culture that doesn't see any issue with it, right? I, I'm, I'm a millennial in this generation as well. It, to me, it doesn't mean much. I grew up seeing that, and so it doesn't hold a natural uh, issue with me, but when I come to Scripture and it's deathly clear on something that I'm not deathly clear on, it's my responsibility to follow Scripture where it goes. And so I will, I will express what it says here, plain as day. Um, and so what, when, when Paul is addressing this, he says, look, what you're running into in, in Ephesus is not going to make you popular, right? These, these women, for instance, were, I mean, they top stuff in Ephesus, not only in how they dressed and how everyone thought of their lives and everything was great and marvelous and wonderful, and then they were teaching other people. When Timothy comes in there to go, look, this is not, this is not okay. You can't just do this and then have them live off of the church because they're, you know, they're, they're a 40-year-old who lost their, you know, their spouse. They should go get married again, he actually says. In your culture at your time, he says, if someone's not even, he actually puts an age on it. If they're under 60, don't even put them on the widow's register. One, they're old enough to work. And two, they should be married again. He said, but, but for them to just go, you know what, for the next 40 years, I'm just going to live off of the church. He says, no, 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 that's not how this works. He says, especially if they have family in the area. If they have family in the area, even if they are a legitimate widow, they shouldn't be living off the church at all. There's actual widows who are left to themselves in the world that the church must care for, and here they're subverting that. And he, he gives ages for it. He gives uh, all sorts of stuff for it. And it happens, unfortunately, in churches uh, quite a bit. Verse 1, chapter 4. He reminds, he reminds Timothy, he says, he says this, this frustration in ministry is just what Christ's ministry looks like. Don't expect that wherever you're going to go, everything's going to be hunky-dory. What does he say in verse 1? Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, in this specific instance, they were forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Again, we come to this, the same thing that Paul has been focusing on, how it is that the church is to live together uh, emboldened by the Spirit of God, is in humility of mind, not insisting that my devotion to vegetarianism is now yours. Or that I say, I shouldn't be married, therefore you shouldn't be married. He says, these, these issues in your life, he says, 
if, if, if a Christian is coming in and, and placing these responsibilities on you that don't come from your conscience and don't come from the word of God, and you're able to eat meat with thanksgiving, how is that not a good thing? Ignore them. Ignore this teaching. <coughs> is there any place in the Bible where it says, it's saying, uh, you know, the widows should get married again? Is there any place in the Bible where it says, man, if you have lost your wife, found it, find another woman? Um, no, it does, it does allow them to do so because upon death you're freed from that law. But no, there is no, there's no equivalent. There, because there's also no, there's no happenings in the first century of a widower being supported by the church. It was widows. Women in their society typically did not have a form of income that was outside either their husband or their family. And so what, what Paul is saying here is true widows, he uses the term, are those who have no family that live nearby that can take care of them and are too young to be married again. Excuse me, uh, yeah, too old to be married again. He never says anything for the men because the expectation is at any point you can support yourself in their culture, right? I would actually argue that that even goes to our culture to a certain extent. But he, at the time that he is expressing this, he's saying the whole point is do not let those who have not actual needs be a suck on the life of the church or even on the finances of the church. Right? And this, is, this is not to be this place where it's just a free-for-all. If somebody who is you know, 27 years old and their husband dies at war, which happens all the time and, uh, in, this, in this culture, they're not, as Paul would define, true widows. Yes, they truly lost their husband, but they're both, they should have family in the area because they're young enough for that yet. They're also young enough to be married again. Don't devote yourself to somebody who is no longer with you. You're free from that law. And then there, there is a teaching that rolls around in our culture around here, where if you are married once, you are married to that person until both of you die. And that is a completely unbiblical teaching. I've heard it at weddings around here. Uh, th this idea that um, we love each other until we die. No, you are devoted to one another until one of you dies. And then that's the end of that marriage. There is no, there's no relationship that extends past that. Uh, you are free to be married after that. But to answer your question, there is no, uh, there is no comparison to that because widowers uh, were not supported by the church because they had the ability to support for themselves in that culture. Yeah, but I meant, since they were saying the widow should go out and try and find somebody, it almost says like the widower should be looking for, to help somebody who's a widow. No. If, if, if she does not have family. Yeah. No, so the responsibility falls to the family first before the church. If, if she has children that are grown, if she has siblings, if she has parents that are still alive, they should be supplying her need before the church does. And he says that explicitly. And, and yeah. But for widows who are fully alone in the world uh, and, and of certain age, he says, take care of them. Take care of them absolutely. Um, you know, if they have nothing else to fall back on and, and they're a fellow sister, take care of them. See to their needs. Be there for them. Um, absolutely. All right. We're going to, in fact, that was the first question I had when I uh, came on responsibility here is, who is a true widow in this church? Do we have uh, any women who are without family in the area or anything like that? I wanted to ensure that such things were looked after. 
And so, because that, that is one of the main responsibilities of the church, see to the needs of one another. All right, let's go ahead and end there. We will come back uh, with the rest of the pastoral epistles um, next time.